Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is Chris Degenia on TalkShoe, or actually Chris Degenia on, on Chris Degenia anymore. Tonight is Friday, February 15th, 2013. Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. I'd like to remind the people that listen to this program on TalkShoe that the chat there is closed because of the trolls and because of certain um, clowns that insist on using the, the chats on my programs to their own agendas and, and, and in order to be divisive. They, they could be as divisive as they want on their own damn forums. They're not going to be divisive on mine. Christoginier is not a democracy, I'm sorry. I can't stand people who have an agenda and who target other people's um, podcasts, other people's forums in, in order to promote their own agenda and, and um, attempt to hide it or, or sometimes don't even do that. But, but it, it, it's, um, it's not very Christian. It, it's not very Christian to veil your intentions or, or, or to try to be surreptitious in your dealings, it's Christian to be open, frank, and honest and scriptural. That's Christian. It, it's Christian when you have an issue with somebody to publish it to his face to confront that person directly and not to smear that person behind his back in, in other forums or, or, or not to attempt to use somebody else's platform to, to, um, to push your calumny. That's not Christian. There are some of my fellow identity Christians who have misinterpreted my recent conversations with people who were better characterized as white nationalists. Whether some of them are marginally white nationalists or sincerely pro-white, that can be argued, but it's immaterial to the purpose, to, for my purposes. And I do not think these identists have followed me quite closely enough over time to even make a valid assessment of what I've been doing. I wrote an editorial entitled, Christianity is Nationalism, which appeared in the June 2012 Saxon Messenger. And my purpose and methods have not at all deviated from the attitudes which I expressed there. Identity Christians put their God first, there's no doubt. But that God doesn't necessarily have to be on their lips, it should be in their hearts. Obedience to God is in one's hearts and one's actions. And their God requires them to love their brethren if our brethren are our fellow believers only, then we are really no better than Catholics. My brethren are all of those of my race who do not make themselves enemies of my God or his purposes, whether they recognize him or not, whether they are aware of his purposes or not. This is because we cannot 
expect all of our fellow white brothers and sisters to share our beliefs. Not in this day and age. Hell no. Since all whites have not had the opportunity to learn the things which we have learned. If we want to speak down on our brethren because we have been gifted with a better knowledge, then we're Pharisees. We're not Christians. This we must understand. Since the entire realm of religion and history has been absolutely poisoned, by the lies of the Jews and their Judeo-Christian apologists. We were warned of this in Scripture. And we, identity Christians, should know it above all other Christians that Satan, who is the Jew, has indeed gone out to deceive the whole world. That includes most of our brethren. I do not compromise my Christian profession. My purpose has not been ecumenical. If it were, I would not have sat on Carolyn Yeager's program and told Will Williams that he was a turkey and a tool for the Jews. I would not have called Hatting Scott a clown, something which I would call him again to his face so long as he insists upon looking at Christianity through his Judaized, dispensationalist eyes. Rather, my purpose has been to demonstrate to those white nationalists who have the capacity to understand that there is indeed a need for a belief in what we can call transcendentalism. And that belief has been with every branch of our race since the dawn of time. This is necessary to demonstrate that those who reject everything spiritual, those who profess atheism and nihilism, those people are indeed Jews or no better than Jews. For Christ dined and in, he dined with and instructed the Pharisees, but he would have nothing to do with the Sadducees. And it is they who were the nihilists of his time. Ex nihilo nihil fit. From nothing, nothing comes. Therefore, all nihilists must be ostracized as Jews. It's the nihilists amongst the white nationalists who are the most vehement against Christian identity, if you haven't noticed. But the nihilists... They must be ostracized as Jews. So they either are Jews or they're absolutely saturated with the lies of the Jews, rejecting not only the Christian Bible, rejecting even the traditions of those whom they claim as their fathers, regardless of their professed religion. Because every branch of our race, all throughout history, has believed in some form of transcendentalism, some idea, whether it's right or not, whether it's right according to our scriptures or not, some idea that there is a greater purpose and a greater cause in the universe. That there is something that transcends the visible creation of God. 
And it is that towards which we reach. Yet this is only the beginning of the battle. Additionally, my purpose has been to demonstrate to those same white nationalists, those who have the capacity to understand, because I don't care about the nihilists, that there is indeed a historical foundation for our Christian identity beliefs. That we are not evangelical lunatics merely attempting to replace Talmudic Jews with Talmudic whites. And that the Jews are not telling the truth about the Bible in the ancient world. Therefore, those white nationalists are doing themselves a disservice by attacking identity Christians, whether they agree with us or not. While at the same time, they are actually assisting the Jew who hates identity Christians above all other white nationalists. And like it or not, Christian identity is white nationalism. It is the original white nationalism. Now, clowns like Will Williams and Hatting Scott would not listen to me with any reason. They would rather scoff and mock, arming themselves with all of the arrows supplied by the Jews. They do not see that they are the intellectual slaves of those same devils which they claim to despise. But the more reasonably minded do take the time to listen and do consider our positions. And even if they don't agree, they at least show some respect for them. And we should at least have respect for those white nationalists who do so. Therefore, I will continue my discussions and my friendly relationships with the likes of Severus Nifelson, Carolyn Yeager, John Friend, they have all been honorable and have had the decency to hear us and not to scoff at or to mock our God. In this current world of deception, this, I believe, is the beginning of the separation of the wheat from the tares. We must also bear in mind that as identity Christians, we should not, what well, we should tell the truth, but we should not attempt to mimic the evangelicals. At Jeremiah 31:34. Yahweh says, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith Yahweh. All of our race knows what we are talking about when we mention the Bible, God and Christ. 
We do not need to teach them to know Jesus. We are not in the stage of the fishers. Our purpose is greater. For we are to follow the hunters. From Jeremiah 16. Behold, I will send for many fishers, saith Yahweh. And they shall fish them. And after will I send for many hunters. And they shall hunt them from every mountain. And from every hill. And from out of the holes of the rocks. We are not evangelicals. We are not Catholics. We do not beat our brethren over the head in an attempt to force them to believe like we do. Rather, we must be that shining city on the hill, and our morality, our clear vision, when we do it right, unlike other clowns, our sense of purpose and our higher calling will attract our true brethren to us. However, we cannot just sit on that hill. We must also be hunters and go looking for our people in the marshes, and in the crags, and in the valleys of the earth. If I were not willing to go there and face my opposition, would my detractors accuse me instead of only preaching to the choir? Think about that. That's been my purpose. In a nutshell. That's what I've tried to outline in my last several Saxon Messenger editorials, several of them since June. And in a program I did with Severus Nifelson on transcendentalism, which has, it, it probably has at least 1,400 downloads, and, and it's, um, I thought it was a good program. And with the two programs I did with Carolyn Yeager, that's been my purpose. Even though the second program actually was supposed to be more about Adolf Hitler's speech, It was still productive, I believe. And so does Carolyn. The Prophecy of Amos, Part 3. This won't be very long. We're only going to talk about three verses in Amos. That's by design, mostly concerning Moab. But also concerning, again as I've been outlining throughout Amos, the proofs of the existence and the decline and fall of these Old Testament kingdoms. They are replete in archaeology. The Bible is not a fairy tale. The stories of its kingdoms and its peoples are true. They've been dug out of the ground. We'll see more of that tonight. The prophecy of Amos begins with oracles against both Israel and Judah, and also against the Edomites, Syrians, Moabites, and Ammonites in certain of their cities. Notice that when I introduced that, like I did last week, I left out the Tyrians, because they should be included in both Israel and Judah, right? 
We have already discussed the fates of many of these pla- many of these places and presented much of what can be seen of the contemporary history of these places from the ancient Assyrian inscriptions. This helps to demonstrate that the biblical account of the history of this period certainly is true, and also to show that these prophecies indeed had the beginning of their fulfillment in the years subsequent to the time of the prophet. Here we shall commence with Amos chapter 2, continuing with the utterances against Moab. Continuing with our theme from the last two segments. Since the second chapter of Amos opens with an oracle against Moab, and the reason given for Moab's punishment was a hideous act performed by Mesha, the king of Moab, and we will be discussing 2 Kings chapter 3 shortly. We are going to begin by presenting first the text of the famous Moabite stone. The following text is taken from the book Ancient Near Eastern Texts Relating to the Old Testament, an excellent resource, and that's why I rely upon it so much. James Pritchard, editor, published in 1969, by Princeton University Press. This is pages 320 and 321. I will publish their facsimile with the podcast of this program, God willing. The Moabite Stone, first the comments from the editors. This important inscription was discovered intact in 1868. It was subsequently broken by the Arabs. Imagine that. They destroy everything. And in 1873, it was taken to the Louvre, that museum in Paris. I'm probably mispronouncing its name. The best publication is found in Dussard. I'll translate the titles. The Monuments of the Palestinians and Judeans at the Museum of the Louvre, 1912, pages 4 through 22. It was published with a magnificent photograph of the Stella, and a good bibliography. Now the editors refer to a prior work where they say, the work of Smend and Sokin, and I'll translate the German, the inscriptions of the king Mesa of Moab, 1886, which was long standard, is not reliable as it was pointed out in detail by Renan and Clermont Ganneau. And they refer us also to the work of Elidsbarski, entitled Ephemeris, volume 1, pages 1 through 10. The editors go on to explain, the most recent competent translation is that of Greisman. On the question of the authenticity of the text, which was strangely disputed for a long time. These are the words of the editors, and it's strangely disputed as they make the parenthetical statement, in spite of the fact that no forger of that time could possibly have divined the correct forms of the letters in the 9th century B.C. Those are the words of William Albright to continue with their comments. For details of translation which depend on recent discoveries, see especially 
Pobol and his work, which I really can't translate because I'm missing the meaning of a word, das oppositionell bestimmt pronomen, something about the position of the pronomen in, in, in grammar, I gather, published in Chicago in 1932, and also Albright himself. There are a number of words which are formerly obscure, but which have now been found in other Northwest Semitic inscriptions, according to the ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament. The last comment they make about this inscription, the date of the Mesha stone, the Mesha stone after King Mesha, is roughly fixed by the reference to Mesha, king of Moab, in 2 Kings, chapter 3, verse 4, after 849 B.C. However, since the contents of the stella point to a date toward the end of the king's reign, it seems probable that it should be placed between 840 and 820, and they say perhaps about 830 B.C. in round numbers. I personally would date it a little later than 830. Now for the contents of the Moabite stone. This inscription... Of course, the, the, the Jews tried to label a forgery. It's proven that it's absolutely not a forgery. It's accepted by a great number of scholars. I read the introduction given to the translation found in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament so that the listener could at least glean somewhat the amount of scholarship that goes into such a translation of such an ancient artifact, and the number of scholars who, working on this stone, certainly esteemed its legitimacy. Not all academics are liars. Not all academics um, seek to tell the world through Jewish eyes. A hundred years ago, it was quite different. A hundred years ago, the Jews didn't have the near-absolute control of Middle Eastern and Near Eastern archaeology that they do today. A hundred years ago, for the most part, Near Eastern and, and Middle Eastern archaeology were very much in the hands of German, English, and American scholars who weren't necessarily so sympathetic to the Jews. The text of the Moabite stone. I am Mesha. Mesha is the king of Moab, mentioned in the opening chapters of the second book of Kings. I am Mesha, son of Kamash, king of Moab. There's an, an ellipsis between those two eponyms. The Dibonite, my father, had reigned over Moab 30 years, and I reigned after my father, who made this high place for Kamash, Kamash is the god of Moab, the idol of Moab, in Karho, now there's an ellipsis, because he saved me from all the kings and caused me, triumph, caused me to triumph over all my adversaries. As for Amri, king of Israel, he humbled Moab many years. For Kamash was angry at his land 
And his son followed him. And he also said, I will humble Moab. The inscription doesn't give us the name of his son. It's ostensibly Jehoram or Joram. In my time he spoke thus, but I have triumphed over him and over his house. While Israel has perished forever. Wishful bragging, I guess. Now Omri had occupied the land of Medeba, and Israel had dwelt there in his time, and half the time of his son, Ahab, forty years. But Kamash dwelt there in my time. And I built Balmion, making a reservoir in it. And I built Karyatin. Now the men of Gad, the Israelite tribe of Gad. Now the men of Gad had always dwelt in the land of Adaroth. And the king of Israel had built Adaroth for them. We will discuss that further at the end of this program. But I fought against the town and took it and slew all the people of the town as satiation for Kamash and Moab. And I brought back from there Arel, or Oriel, its chieftain, dragging him before Kamash and Kerioth. And I settled there men of Sharon and men of Maharith. And Kamash said to me, Go, take Nebo from Israel. So I went by night and fought against it from the break of dawn until noon, taking it and slaying all, 7,000 men, boys, women, girls, and maidservants. For I had devoted them to destruction for the god Ashtar Kamash. And I took from there the, and there's an ellipsis, the blank, the blank of Yahweh, probably the people of Yahweh, possibly the judges of Yahweh, dragging them before Kamash. And the king of Israel had built Jahaz. And he dwelt there while he was fighting against me. But Kamash drove him out before me. And I took from Moab 200 men, all first-class warriors, and set them against Jahaz and took it in order to attach it to the district of Deban. It was I who built Carho, the wall of the forest and the wall of the citadel. I also built its gates, and I built its towers, and I built the king's house. And I made both of its reservoirs for water inside the town. And there was no cistern inside the town at Carho. So I said to all the people, let each of you make a cistern for himself in his house. And I cut beams for Carho with Israelite captives. I built Aror, and I made the highway in the Arnon Valley. I built Beth Bamath, for it had been destroyed. I built Bezir, for it lay in ruins. With fifty men of Daban, for all Daban is my loyal dependency. And I reigned in peace over the hundred towns which I added to the land, a hundred towns from Israel. And I built Medeba and Beth Diblathan and Beth Balmion. 
And I set there the, and there's another ellipsis, the blank of the land. As for Haronin, there dwelt in it, and there's another ellipsis. And Kamas said to me, go down, fight against Haronin. And I went down and I fought against the town and I took it. And Kamash dwelt there in my time. Where the Moabites were, they esteemed their God to be, right? That is the Moabite stone. It fully corroborates many aspects of our Old Testament concerning the dwelling places of the children of Israel, the existence of the tribe of Gad, the idea that the tribe of Gad belonged to Israel, and that the king of Israel built their city for them, or at least one city for them. The Moabite stone is with all certainty an authentic discovery, which is but one of many that prove beyond doubt that the ancient kingdoms of the Hebrew Bible indeed existed as the Bible describes them. Of course, some critics would scoff. Those who would have us to believe that the Bible is nothing but a fairy tale. But when the books of the Bible were first written, the men who wrote and preserved its pages down through time could by no means have known that we today would dig such ancient inscriptions out of the ground so many centuries after they had been buried to corroborate what we read. This inscription, along with many others, fully verified the historicity of the Bible for us in ways that cannot be honestly disputed. The Moabites had been subjected to Israel by King David, as it is related in 2 Samuel chapter 8. In the time of King Ahab, in the period of the divided kingdom, Moab was subject to Israel as opposed to Judah, right? It is reported in 2 Kings chapter 1 that Moab revolted after the death of Ahab. However, there it only says, then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. That's it. The Moabite stone obviously tells us the extent of that revolt from the Moabite point of view. But the Book of Kings, except for that one line, is silent on the matter. 2 Chronicles, chapter 20, describes a battle between Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and the Moabites, Ammonites, and the inhabitants of Mount Seir, where Judah is victorious. That battle, reading the text, right? That battle was before Ahaziah was king of Israel, and we know that from 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 35. And Joram, or Jehoram, followed his brother Ahaziah as king. They were both the sons of Ahab from Jezebel. Therefore, the events of 2 Chronicles chapter 20 preceded those of 2 Kings chapter 3 by at least a couple of years, for Ahaziah had a relatively short reign. So the events of 2 Kings chapter 20 preceded those of 2 Kings chapter 3, and the events of 2 Kings chapter 3 
are not what is being described on a Moabite stone. They are not a part of that. The events described on the Moabite stone must have happened around the same time as those described in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. But they are only briefly characterized in 2 Kings chapter 1. And 2 Chronicles chapter 20 deals with Judah and now with Israel, where the Moabite stone deals mostly with Israel and not with Judah. I'm sure there's, there's a more complete narrative lost in the sands of time. So basically, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, dealing with Judah, is probably a part of the same action that you see under Mesha, the king of Moab, described in the Moabite stone, where he, in the Moabite stone, is chronicling the interaction in the rebellion of Moab against Israel. But these things are only briefly characterized in 2 Kings chapter 1 with one line, the opening line that Moab rebelled against Israel. Later, in 2 Kings chapter 3, Mesha, the king of Moab, that same king of the Moabite stone later in his rule, went to battle against Joram and Jehoshaphat, the kings of Israel and Judah, and an unnamed king of Edom was allied with them. 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 21 to 27. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings would come up to fight against them, they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward and stood in the border. And they rose up early in the morning, and the sun shone upon the water. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side, as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings are surely slain, and they have smitten one another. For some background, let me say that in the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 3, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and Jehoram, the king of Israel, make a league against the Moabites who were conducting warfare against Israel and Judah. There's a king of Edom, which we will discuss later on, who is allied with them. Edom at this time is subject to Judah. That's important to note. And when they came to the camp of Israel, meaning the Moabites, the Israelites rose up and smote the Moabites so that they fled before them. But they went forward, smiting the Moabites even in their country. And they beat down the cities, and on every good piece of land cast every man his stone and filled it. They made it impossible to farm the land until the stones were removed again. And they stopped all the wells of water and felled all the good trees. Only in Kir Harasheth left they the stones thereof. Albeit the slingers went about and smote it, 
And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords, swords to break through even unto the king of Edom, but they could not. In other words, they wanted to break the battle lines through the weakest point, which they thought was the king of Edom and the forces beneath him, but they could not. Verse 27, this is the, the, the subject of our discourse here tonight for a great extent. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel, and they departed from him and returned to their own land. Of course, that's the King James Version. Note here that the second book of Kings states that the king of Moab took and offered only his son, in quotes, as a burnt offering. Josephus seems to clarify this passage, wherein his interpretation of that pronoun, his, in the phrase, his son or his eldest son, The pronoun indeed refers to the king of Moab, his, the king of Moab's own eldest son. This is important. Its importance will be realized when we get to Amos. I will read Antiquities chapter, I'm sorry, book 9, lines 38 through 43. This is from book 9, chapter 3, paragraph 2 in the Whiston numbering system. Book 9, lines 38 through 43, in the the Loeb Classical Library numbering system. But when the Moabites heard that the three kings were coming upon them and made their approach through the wilderness, the king of Moab gathered his army together presently and commanded them to pitch their camp upon the mountains, that when the enemy should attempt to enter their country, they might not be concealed from them. But when at the rising of the sun they saw the water in a torrent, for it was not far from the land of Moab, and that it was of the color of blood, for at such a time the water especially looks red by the shining of the sun upon it. They formed a false notion of the state of their enemies, as if they had slain one another from thirst, and that the river ran with their blood. However, supposing that this was the case, they desired their king would send them out to spoil their enemies, whereupon they all went in haste as to an advantage already gained, and came to the enemy's camp as supposing them destroyed already. But their hope deceived them, for as their enemies stood around them, some of them were cut to pieces, and others of them were dispersed and fled to their own country. And when the kings fell into the land of Moab, meaning the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom, they overthrew the cities that were in it and spoiled their fields and marred them or damaged them, filling them with the stones out of the brooks and cut down the best of their trees and stopped up their fountains of water and overthrew their walls to their foundations. But the king of Moab 
when he was pursued, endured a siege, and seeing his city in danger of being overthrown by force, made a sally, and went out with 700 men in order to break the enemy's camp with his horsemen. On that side where the watch seemed to be most kept most negligently. And when upon trial he could not get away, for he came upon a place that was carefully watched, he returned into the city and did a thing that showed despair and the utmost distress. For he took his oldest son, who was to reign after him, and lifting him up upon the wall, that he might be visible to all the enemies, he offered him as a whole burnt offering unto God, whom, when the king saw, they pitied the distress that was the occasion of it, and were so affected in way of humanity and pity that they raised the siege, and everyone returned to his own house. That's Josephus' account. Let me read 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 26 and 27 once again. And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too sore for him, he took with him 700 men that drew swords to break through even under the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his eldest son that should have reigned in his stead and offered him for a burnt offering upon the wall. And it was great indignation against Israel. And they departed from him and returned to their own land. Now this account is not provided in Chronicles. The account of the battle with the Moabites and the Israelites in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 refers to something that happened a few years previous to this. Now, Josephus may have simply been expounding upon his interpretation of the scripture we have at 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. We shall see that this interpretation seems to disagree with the words of Amos, which open up Amos chapter 2, which reads... Thus saith Yahweh, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. So did the Moabite king Mesha burn his own son in sacrifice? Or is it possible that the pronoun his in 2 Kings chapter 3 verse 27 refers to the king of Edom? And did he burn the son of the king of Edom captured in battle? He who would have been the king of Edom. In any case, Amos 2.1 certainly seems to be in conflict with the usual interpretations of 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. The Dead Sea Scrolls fragments of Amos do not shed any light on the topic. And, of course, the account which we have just seen in Josephus and his expounding of 2 Kings chapter 3, no matter what his source, 
certainly disagrees with Amos. While most modern versions of the Bible, and Breton's Septuagint English, read part of 2 Kings 3.27, much like the King James does. And I refer to the part where it says, and there was great indignation against Israel, that because of the human sacrifice of the king of Moab, of his own son, there was great indignation against Israel. While most modern versions read it in that manner, the Septuagint Greek of 2 Kings 3.27, where Breton wrote indignation, has a word, metamelos. And metamelos means regret or repentance. And that's how it's footnoted even. The editors of Breton's edition footnoted it, that it means repentance. Metamelos means regret or repentance. It never means indignation. Therefore, with the, with the preposition epi, it should read that great regret came upon Israel. The Septuagint Greek, without a doubt, says, I don't care how Brenton translated it, without a doubt it says, great regret came upon Israel. The reading of the Geneva Bible, the, the reading, the original reading in English is the Geneva Bible, the reading of that phrase in the Geneva Bible says, so that Israel was sorely grieved. I don't know where the King James and all the mo other modern versions follow the King James and saying that there was great indignation against Israel. The Septuagint Greek says that great regret came upon Israel, and the Geneva Bible agrees with it, so that Israel was sorely grieved. Firstly, it makes no sense that anyone should have indignation against Israel. If Israel was at war with Moab, and the king of Moab took it upon himself to do such a horrible thing as to sacrifice his own son. It makes no sense that anyone should have indignation against Israel for that. Especially since the king of Moab was the aggressor in this war. Secondly, neither would it make any sense that Israel was grieved at the sight of an enemy destroying itself. No matter the horror of the crime, human sacrifice was not unheard of at this time. It was spoken of quite often. It was practically commonplace. So the pronoun is misunderstood. That would be my contention. The pronoun in 2 Kings 3.27 is misunderstood. And his refers instead to the king of Edom. Israel would be grieved if such a thing happened to an ally, not to an enemy. Next, we shall explain or, or shall examine why. Why would Israel grieve for the king of Edom? And why would Yahweh care for the king of Edom? Because the king of Edom at this time was an Israelite. Yeah, that's right. 
He was not an Edomite. This time in 2 Kings chapter 3 is still in the time of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And under his rule, Edom was subject to Judah. Therefore, in the last chapter of 1 Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 47, we read this. There was then no king in Edom. A deputy was king. That's right. There was no king in Edom. There was a king of Edom here in 2 Kings chapter 3 because he was a deputy. This appointed deputy, the one in 1 Kings twenty-two forty-seven, this appointed deputy, sitting as king, was the king of 2 Kings chapter 3. He was an Israelite appointed by Jehoshaphat to rule over Edom. And Israelite was the king of 2 Kings chapter 3, who joined under the kings of Judah and Israel to go to war with Moab. It is this appointed king, or his son, on behalf of whom Yahweh takes issue with Moab here in Amos. Yahweh is not taking issue with Moab over an Edomite. That is not happening. There is no king in Edom, 1 Kings 22:47. Rather, a deputy was king. That's what it says. So if there's no king in Edom, the king of Edom could not have been an Edomite. He was an appointee from the court of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, who ruled over Edom at this time. Yahweh is not sticking up for an, for an Edomite. In, in Amos chapter 2, the king of Edom is an Israelite. Now it can be argued whether we could expect the son of the appointed king of Edom to maintain the appointment of his father after him. But that, because of Amos chapter 2, that is how I have to read that pronoun in 2 Kings 3.27, in spite of what Joseph says, Josephus says. Because these two verses, that they have to be reconciled. After the death of Jehoshaphat, Edom re rebelled against Judah and made a king of their own. That's described in 2 Kings chapter 8. Here in 2, chap 2 Kings chapter 3, an Israelite was king over Edom. The proof of that is in 1 Kings 22.47. And here in Amos 2.1, because Yahweh takes issue with Moab, not for burning an Edomite, but for burning the king of Edom, who was a man appointed by Jehoshaphat to rule over Edom. Because the Edomites, for some political reason or another, weren't being permitted to have a king of their own. All of this illustrates the many problems we have understanding the very concise and abbreviated books of the kings and chronicles of Israel and Judah, which have been left to us. These which we have not, 
These which we have are not the original records. But they are abbreviated copies made at later dates. That is fully evident throughout these books of Kings and Chronicles where the perspective changes constantly from the present to the reflective. From a, a present tense first-hand account to a second-hand account looking back at the event. These books are not necessarily wrong, but they are often exceedingly abbreviated. While the Moabite stone gives an entire account of Moab's earlier rebellion and insurrection against Israel and Judah, where entire towns of people are exterminated by the Moabites. Read that Moabite stone text again. I'll post it at Christagenia with these notes, of course. Entire towns of Israelites are exterminated by the Moabites. Men, woman, and child. Was the God of Israel mean for telling the children of Israel to exterminate all the Canaanites? The Canaanites would do it to the Israelites in a moment. Even the history, even the Jewish spin on the Bible today is one-sided. Those bastards. They do to the Israelites of the Old Testament the same thing they do to the American colonists dealing with the savage squat monsters, right? While the Moabite stone gives an entire account of Moab's earlier rebellion and insurrection against Israel and Judah, the text of 2 Kings chapter 1 recorded those same events with but one line where it opens with the statement, then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. Yeah, that's all, that's all two kings tells us. But the Moabite stone tells us that entire cities were, terminate, well, were exterminated in that rebellion. This is compensated in small part in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 from the perspective of Judah. But that's hardly a full account either. So it is here that Amos... Amos provides an account of the human sacrifice conducted by the king of Moab from 2 Kings chapter 3 that is quite different than the usual interpretation of that event as it is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 3. We may prefer to follow the prophet in this instance because the text is ambiguous and the interpretations of it ever since the time of Josephus, are not necessarily right. And they shouldn't be considered right if they conflict with the prophet. Amos 2, verse 2. But I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. And Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting, and with the sound of the trumpet. And I will cut off the judge from the midst thereof, and will slay all the princes thereof with him, saith Yahweh. 
Moab, I'm sorry, there were two ancient biblical cities named Kerioth. The first was in Judah by the border of Edom and is apparently mentioned only in Joshua 15.25. It's from that city that I believe Judas Ishkerioth, Judas the man of Kerioth, subsequently came from. The second is in Moab, and is mentioned here in Amos and twice in Jeremiah chapter 48, where that prophet also records an oracle against Moab. So from Jeremiah, it is readily apparent that the prophecy of Amos against Kerioth was not yet fulfilled in the days after the Assyrian invasions. Kerioth, it may be noted, is not found today. There is no Kerioth today. Nobody knows where it is. There are some assumptions concerning its former location, but Kerioth does not exist today. There was a village destroyed by the Israelis in the 1967 war that was assumed to be the site of ancient Kerioth. It had a similar name, but it was only a village where the Kerioth of antiquity was the great capital city of the Moabites and is mentioned on one occasion that I found in the Assyrian inscriptions. From Jeremiah chapter 48, verses 20 to 25 and 40 through 44, the entire chapter is an oracle against Moab. I only want to elucidate the parts that concern Kerioth, right? Moab is confounded, for it is broken down. Howl and cry, tell ye it in Ammon, that Moab is spoiled, and judgment is come upon the plain country, upon Holan, and upon Jahaz, Jahaza, I'm sorry, Jahaza, which is called Jahaz in the Moabite stone. So we see the city Jahaz in the Moabite stone is Jahaza in Jeremiah. And upon Mephath and upon Diban, another city we see in the Moabite stone. And upon Nebo, another city we see on the Moabite stone. And upon Beth Diblophane, we see a lot of these cities on the Moabite stone. And upon Kiriathane, and upon Beth Gamol, and upon Beth Neon, and upon Kerioth, and upon Bozrah, and upon all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near. The horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken, saith Yahweh. From verse 40 of Jeremiah chapter 48. For thus saith Yahweh, behold, he shall fly as an eagle, and shall spread his wings over Moab. Kerioth is taken, and the strongholds are surprised. And the mighty men's hearts in Moab at that day shall be as the heart of a woman in her pangs. And Moab shall be destroyed from being a people, because he has magnified himself against Yahweh. Fear in the pit and the snare shall be upon thee, O inhabitant of Moab, saith Yahweh. He that flees from the fear shall fall into the pit, and he that gets up out of the pit shall be taken in the snare. For I will bring it upon him, even upon Moab, the year of their visitation, saith Yahweh. 
Moab was listed as being a tributary to the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser III, in his inscriptions, and he ruled from 744 to 727 B.C. Again, Moab is listed as being tributary to Sargon II, who ruled from 721 to 705 B.C. Moab was still a tributary in the reigns of Esarhaddon from 680 to 669 B.C. and Ashurbanipal from 668 to 633 B.C. That's from ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament pages 282, 287, 291, 294, and 298. There is a passage in the Septuagint which is not found in the Masoretic text, which interpolates, it adds to, 2 Chronicles 36.5, and which relates that Moab was subject to and allied with the Babylonian Judea, invaders of Judea those who destroyed Jerusalem in circa 586-585 B.C. I'll read 2 Chronicles 36.5 from the Septuagint from Brenton's English. Joachim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Zechorah, daughter of Nereus of Ramah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers did. In his days came the Bukodonosar, king of Babylon, into the land, and he served him three years, and then revolted from him. And the Lord sent, them the Cal- sent against them the Chaldeans, and plundering parties of Syrians, and plundering parties of the Moabites, and of the children of Ammon, and of Samaria. But after this they departed according to the word of the Lord by the hand of his servants, the prophets. Nevertheless, the wrath of the Lord was upon Judah so that they should be removed from his presence because of the sins of Manassas in all that he did and for the innocent blood which Joachim shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, yet the Lord would not utterly destroy them. Yes, I read Brenton's English as it exists. Moab seems to have disappeared as a national identity, but not as an ethnic one in either the later Babylonian or the early Persian periods. Nehemiah, who, as it can be established, was indeed the governor of Judea under the Persians until 490 B.C., from either 504 or 502, I forget. I did the chronology diligently in my Mark 13 presentation last year. Nehemiah, in his book, mentions the presence of Ammonites, but Moabites are not mentioned in a contemporary context. Discussing Lot, the ancestor of the Moabites and Ammonites, Josephus says, writing of his own time, but he's discussing Lot, the former of whom was the father of the Moabites, which is even still a great nation. And Josephus is, of course, using the ethnic sense of the word nation. The ancients did not 
confuse nation with the geographical territory, right? Like we do. Not 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 the ancient Greeks. A nation was a body of people. The later was the father of the Ammonites. And both of them are the inhabitants of Colo Syria, which is that part of Syria beyond the Jordan, the other side of the mountains of Moab. It's called Hollow Syria is what it means. Later, Josephus counted the inhabitants of both Gilead and Moab as Arabians in Antiquities, Book 13, line 374. Discussing the period of Alexander the Great, Josephus again mentions the land of Moab and relates that it is, at that time, a possession of the king of Arabia. So Josephus, writing from a Greco-Roman and Judean perspective, but he's writing in Greek, tells us that the Moabites and the Ammonites in his time, are Arabians. He counts them as Arabians, as Arabs, all the mixed-up peoples of Arabia. That was the inference. And he also talks about the inhabitants of Gilead in that context, which can describe some of the Gadites and Reubenites that were left behind because they weren't all deported, but it could also describe some of the people that the Assyrians brought into those regions. It could describe Arabs and Canaanites who lived in those regions. They're Arabs, according to Josephus, including the Ammonites and Moabites of his time. He can identify them, that's what he's saying, and he's calling them Arabians. And Moab, the land of Moab, is a possession of the king of Arabia at the time of Josephus. That's Antiquities, chapter, I'm sorry, book 13, lines 382 and 397. The next part of the prophecy of Amos contains oracles against Judah and Israel. These will be presented at length in the next segment of this presentation. First, I would like to discuss some of the historical evidence of these ancient kingdoms. We have just seen the attestation of the text of the ancient Moabite stone. In that stone, we see the tribe of Gad mentioned explicitly and in the same location that the Hebrew Bible places them. Where the Moabite stone says, now the men of Gad had always dwelt in the land of Adaroth, and the king of Israel had built Adaroth for them. The biblical book of Numbers, chapter 32, verses 1 through 4 states, and I quote, now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle, and when they saw the land of Jazer, and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle. The children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and to Eleazar the priest, and unto the princes of the congregation, saying, Adaroth and Dibon, 
and Jazzer, names we just saw in the Moabite stone, names that we see the Moabites taking from the Israelites 700 years later on the Moabite stone. 700 years after the time of Joshua on the Moabite stone. Adaroth and Daban and Jazer and Nimrah and Heshbon and Elioleth and Shabam and Nebo and beyond. Even the country which Yahweh smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle. And thy servants have cattle. The Moabite stone also mentions the Israelite King Omri, as the Assyrian inscriptions also often do. These things are historical. This stone was dug out of the ground. It was dug out of the ground three millennia, almost three millennia, two and a half millennia after it was carved, after it was inscribed with the historical inscriptions that it contains. For two and a half millennia, men made copies of the books we know as the Bible and passed them down through time. In the 1800s, the stones dug out of the ground. And it corroborates everything about Gad and Reuben that we read in the scripture. The Greek historian of the first century, Diodorus Siculus, and I st- I'm citing this because I-, I got the idea to pull these citations and-, and discuss this because the subsequent verses in Amos mention the Exodus. Diodorus Siculus mentioned Moses as a historical figure. Diodorus Siculus, the first century Greek historian, mentioned the Exodus. As a historical event, he also accounted Moses as a founder of cities. Theodore Siculus, Library of History. Book 40, Chapter 3. Paragraphs 3 to 8. Theodore Siculus explained that Moses was a lawgiver and compared him to other famous ancient lawgivers, such as the Cretan Minos, the Spartan Lycurgus, Zalmoxis of the Gede, and the Egyptian Sassikia, and the Persian Zarathustra, Library of History, Book 1, Chapter 94, Paragraph 2. Now, while, while Theodore Siculus considered some of the laws attributed to Moses to be barbaric or misanthropic, and he considered them to be xenophobic, or actually the word which he used was misogenic, hostile to strangers, he nonetheless fully accepted their historicity. No matter what he thought about them, he fully accepted their historicity. Library of History, 
fragments of books 34 and 35, paragraph 1, section 3. Theodore Siculus fully accepted the historicity of all these things, and from multiple historical sources of his own, because that's what Theodore Siculus did. He called his own writing Library of History. And he called it that because he called from all of the best historical sources available to himself in his own time and made a compilation of them in a general historical narrative, starting with the earliest times and proceeding down to his own. What is also evident is that Dior Siculus accepted the Exodus account as a significant part in the greater story of the founding of what we would call Western civilization. Yes, he did. Dior is quoted from the earlier historian Hecatahius of Abdera, the Greek historian and skeptic philosopher of the 4th century B.C., who gave a strange account of the Israelite exodus from Egypt from an ostensibly Egyptian viewpoint, where he says, and I quote, that the aliens, referring to the Hebrews in Egypt, that the aliens were driven from the country, and the most outstanding and active among them, banded together, and, as some say, were cast ashore in Greece and certain other regions. Their leaders were notable men, chief among them being Danos and Cadmus. But the greater number were driven into what is now called Judea. The colony was headed by a man named Moses, outstanding for both his wisdom and for his courage. Library of History. Book 40. Chapter 3. Paragraphs 1 through 3. Cadmus. Cadmus is called Cadmus the Egyptian. He's the legendary Greek founder of Thebes in, in Greece, the city of Thebes in Greece. There's poems written about Thebes in Greece. Seven Against Thebes comes to mind, written by Aeschylus, the 5th century tragic poet. Phoenician Woman is another one, written about Thebes by Euripides the 5th century tragic poet. The Thebans were depicted as blonde and beautiful and fair. Golden-haired. Fair women with golden hair. Imagine that. They weren't Jews. But they left Egypt as aliens in Egypt at the same time according to the ancient Greek historians. That Moses departed with the Hebrews in the Exodus. The other figure mentioned there by Diodorus 
I'm sorry, Cadmus is, is, his eponym is Cadmus the Phoenician in all of the ancient Greek poems. He's mentioned in a host of poems. He's mentioned by Herodotus, the historian, Cadmus the Phoenician. He's mentioned in the epic poets by Hesiod and by Homer. The other man, chief among them being Danos and Cadmus, the other man is Danos, the Egyptian. The eponymous ancestor of the Danans is Danos, the Egyptian. He brought the Danans to Greece from Egypt. There's poems written about that in the tragic poets. I think Suppliant Woman is one of them, and it was written by Euripides. Danos the Egyptian was a Hebrew, the tribe of Dan. The Greeks remember him as Danos the Egyptian. They wrote a parody about him. His daughters, because they were described in flight, they were seen as feminine, right, to the Greeks. That's why it's a parody his daughters fleeing the sons of Egypt and settling in the Peloponnesus. His descendants were the aggressors in the Trojan War. They were Greeks. They were Hebrews. And Diodorus Siculus saw all these things as historical. Strabo! Another Greek historian, even though he's known as Strabo, the geographer, he's a historian. He wrote a history. His history didn't survive, unfortunately, but his geography did. Strabo considered Moses to be a historical figure, just like Theodorus Siculus did. He wrote about him at length. He described him as being a pious and devout founder of a civil society in Judea, centered around Jerusalem. That's described in Strabo's Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2, Paragraphs 35 to 37. Like Theodore Siculus, Strabo also counted Moses among those of his own list of esteemed prophets, lawgivers, and philosophers, whom he attributed with the beginnings of what we would call Western civilization where he listed Moses notably among those of the Romans, Greeks, Assyrians, Persians, Gede, and others. That's in Strabo's Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2, Paragraph 39. Surely the Greeks, considering themselves to be generally quite blonde and fair people, Neither Diodorus Siculus nor Strabo could have possibly thought of Moses or the people of Judea or the people of Mesopotamia to have been brown-skinned aliens, especially since Diodorus Siculus pretty much despises brown-skinned aliens where he describes Egypt and Ethiopia, especially since Strabo marveled that people of different races inhabited certain cities in Egypt at the same time, speaking of Alexandria in particular. Strabo marveled at that. 
they would certainly have wondered why these brown-skinned aliens founded these cities in Greece, because they're all identified as being blonde and fair throughout Greek literature. Damn, how stupid are we? We don't read our own literature. If you're a pagan, you should believe this stuff. If you claim to be a pagan and you don't believe this stuff, you're an idiot. You don't even read your pagan literature. Strabo and Diodorus were pagans, you idiots. White nationalists, some of them are the dumbest bastards in existence, I swear. They swallow all the tricks of the Jews. Danos the Egyptian, Cadmus the Phoenician. These people that were said to have been the aliens who fled Egypt in the exodus with Moses. They're the founders of Greek civilization. They were explicitly esteemed to have been the forebears or even the founders of much of the civilization of the Greeks in the Greeks' writing. Furthermore, regardless of what the Greeks thought about the miracles or the religious aspects of the biblical literature, the Greek philosophers and historians nevertheless accepted the historicity of the biblical narrative. One day, we shall indeed shut the mouths of all of our detractors. And as Joseph Goebbels often said, we shall one day grab the Jews by the throat and shut their lying mouths for good. Next week I will commence with the rest of Amos chapter 2 and the oracles against Israel and Judah. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. And good night. I'll be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren against the Paul Bashers. Chapter 12. Thank you and good night. Praise Yahweh.